Entering the Vatican Apostolic Palace is in itself ethereal, but being with 40 of the highest level eminent religious leaders to launch a COP26 appeal was heavenly. After seven months of preparations and 36 hours at the Vatican, religious leaders and scientists signed a unified appeal to the world in relation to the faith community expectations of COP26 and their commitment to action. Sally Axworthy, British ambassador to the Holy See, explained that faith leaders already played a key role in building momentum for COP21 in 2015, and she and the Italian ambassador wondered if the same thing could be done for COP26 that was scheduled to take place November 1st through the 12th, 2021, in Glasgow. Axworthy said that the religious and scientific leaders attending would be gathering from most major faiths and denominations from every corner of the world. That from the United Nations Environment Program and the Catholic World Report about the culmination of a seven-month process involving faith leaders from around the world traveling to Rome for the signing of the document they'd prepared to send to Glasgow and the 26th UN Conference on Climate Change there. One of those faith leaders was Rabbi Daniel Swartz, spiritual leader of Temple Hesed here in Scranton and executive director of the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life. We had a chance to speak with Rabbi Daniel by phone about the proceedings and the surprise invitation he received to take part. It was a, about a year ago, actually. It was late December, early January, and I got a, a letter from the Vatican inviting me to be part of an interfaith dialogue uh, between faith leaders and scientists on climate change leading up to the recent climate change negotiations in, in Glasgow called COP26. And it, if it hadn't had the Vatican stationery on it, I'm not sure I would have believed it, but it didn't really give any details of the, of the gathering. And so I, my next thought was that this was something that would have had thousands of people at it and that they had sort of invited everybody who was involved in faith and, and environment. And I wrote to a few colleagues to see if they were going to go. And to my great embarrassment, found that none of them had been invited um, and, and then got more detailed and found out that it was, in fact, a group of about 40 faith leaders from around the world and about 10 scientists. And the way that I put it is that it was a little bit like that song on Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the others. <laughs> Because nearly everyone who was invited was head of a major international denomination or faith group or interfaith group. It was the General Secretary of the World Council of Churches, uh, Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew, the head of the Worldwide Orthodox Church, um, Archbishop Malden of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Church, and, and so on and the General Secretary of the Muslim World League, the head of some notable Buddhist sects and monasteries, head of an Islamic university, and me. And so it, it was always a little bit of a puzzlement how I found myself in this august company. Did you ever find out? Well, the 
interesting thing was that there, there were a number of different hands involved in this. So it was convened through the Vatican, but it was also run by the Italian embassy to the Vatican and the English embassy to the Vatican. Because Italy and, and Great Britain were co-chairs of the, of the climate conference. And, and then Great Britain brought in a group called Wilton Park, which is a sort of adjunct to their State Department. And Wilton Park does dialogues. That's kind of one of their key parts of existence. And talking to some of the Wilton Park staff, they made it clear that they like to kind of mix things up, to bring in different sorts of people into a dialogue to ensure that there were different kinds of viewpoints. And so what what seems to have been the case, at least, is that you know most of the people involved on the faith end of things were people who cared about climate change, but you know it was one of of a hundred things that they did, and and not really a central focus. And so there was myself and one other man, Rajwan Singh, who runs a a group called Eco Sikh in the Sikh tradition, and who's a dentist by profession, who who really were activists, you know, passionate about climate change and who had really dedicated a lot of our our life to that. And so that it was this combination of folks who had positions of power and folks who were really passionate, and then scientists that were sort of more uh, social scientists and hard science and, and trying to get all these different viewpoints in the mix as we proceeded. Well, before we get to the conference itself, Rabbi Daniel, can you talk with us about your own passion for the environment? Were you running out in the fields when you were little, Daniel? Were you that sort of thing? Yeah. So, you know, I was was a Boy Scout, a Cub Scout, and then Boy Scout, and was out in nature a lot. It was really where I, I found both intellectual nourishment and and spiritual comfort and my family went camping a lot and went to national parks when i was in high school my mom had gone back to school to get a masters in field ecology and i became her field assistant so we would we would go out as she was surveying this area and helping to draw up a management plan and and she had always also been very involved with environmental things but it was also really a sweet bonding time with my mom to to be doing that with her. And we waded through the swamps and through the prickly ash and the deer fly and everything. And it was really an important time. And then my first, the first job that I had was as a nature counselor at a Boy Scout camp. So this really goes way back. And in college, you know, my majors were environmental policy. I was a double major in environmental policy and geological sciences. And it was really in college that I started to become more involved in the Jewish community. And that was always a connection for me, that for me, part of the way that I was religious was my connection with the, with the natural world um, and understanding the role that had played in in my faith tradition and and for me personally. Well, we know we've talked to you before, Rabbi Daniel, about the Psalms and how important the Psalms are to you, the poetry and, and the chanting of the Psalms, in fact. But there's an awful lot of nature imagery in the Psalms, isn't there? Oh, yes. And and it's it's imagery that really puts humanity in an interesting light. You know, so for example, in Psalm 148, there's this whole sort of chorus of the universe towards God of praise. And, and when you think from a musical standpoint, 
if you've got a chorus, then having any one voice dominate sort of ruins the power of the chorus. And, and so in a very subtle way, just by, by putting humanity as one of, of all these different voices singing praise, without, you know, kind of being too uh, didactic about it, the psalmist is saying, hey, we're not the center of the universe, and our part in this choir is much better if we aren't domineering over everything. So it's a very different kind of attitude about, about nature, not just appreciating its beauty, but also understanding that we're part of this greater whole and, and, and not that we're kind of at the center of the picture. How have you been able then in the course of being a rabbi in different congregations to exercise your care and your concern in communities in which you serve? Well, in, you know, if you go back to biblical times, one thing that I, uh, I often do this exercise with, with people, and I have them close their eyes and picture the first image that comes to, to their mind when they hear the word environment, and then open their eyes and, and raise their hands if there were any people in that picture. And there's never more than just a scattering of people, that, that somehow in, in modernity we have come to think of the environment as something out there, whales and wilderness. In the, in the time that, that the Bible was being written and that Jewish holidays and traditions were being developed, that would have been impossible because, you know, people just recognized that this is where they lived. There was not actually a biblical Hebrew word for the environment because it wasn't an external concept. You just lived on the land, and if the land was not doing well, you were not going to be able to do well. We have these layers between us and direct experience of the world around us often. But, but the reality is still that when, when the world around us isn't doing well, we don't, we don't do well. You know, so, so part of what I try to do is help people understand that if they really want to understand, if they really want to connect with our tradition, they have to put themselves in a place where what goes on in the land around you matters. And, and then to connect that to some of the ways that we have really thought about Jewish tradition and, and, and other faith traditions in terms of, of justice, and, and how intimately questions of justice are tied into questions of, of the environment. That, that really, when you have a society where people can exploit others, you know, one of the ways that that happens is through the environment, and, and it's the same dynamic. You know, we see the scars throughout northeastern Pennsylvania of prior practices that, that harm the environment, those were all practices that also exploited the poor and the less powerful. And those really go hand in hand. The, the mine owners didn't live in the slag fields and didn't have to deal with the, with the air pollution um, from coal burning. They, they lived elsewhere. And, and every time we disconnect questions of environment from questions of justice, we really, I, I think, have this inaccurate sense of what's, of what's going on. So, so I try to connect us to the, those ancient ways of understanding how we're tied to the land, and also to the continuous thread of how do we address justice uh, within society, between societies, between humans and the natural world, and, and between our generation and, and generations to come. And were those fundamental questions in the conference you attended through the Vatican? Yes. So, so the, the preparation for the conference was that we met monthly, 
and and it was really truly a global group of people from pretty much every time zone where there are people, including island nations in the Pacific and 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 so on. And so they just kind of set it in the middle of the day in terms of you know twelve thirty in in Rome, and the rest of us just played along as best we could. It was 6.30 in the morning here, but not as bad as if I had been on the West Coast. And, you know, there were people who were up in the middle of the night and in the middle of the Pacific and so on. But we all, you know, we talked together on a monthly basis for, for seven months about what does it mean, both what's really going on from a scientific standpoint and a, an economic and policy standpoint, but, but what do we have to say about that? And, and very clearly, one of the central lenses that we viewed the climate crisis in as people of faith was the question of justice, of, of looking at the world in, in Pope Francis's view as our common home. And if it's really our common home, then, then what's happening when what people over in, the, in this wing are doing is making life unbearable for people over there? And how if we um, really believe that God cares about the world, that behavior that is driving species to extinction both has some real practical utilitarian issues uh, associated with it in terms of the vitality of life and the spread of disease and, and all sorts of things. But there's also this moral question of, of wiping out other life forms that are part of this overall goodness of, of the world. So we, we raised those, those themes pretty much from the beginning, looking at our responsibility to each other. And then there were some things that developed more as we went along. So, you know, there, there are variations on the idea, love your neighbor, in, in every faith tradition that I know. But one of the things we started challenging ourselves about is, well, how do we define neighbor? How do we think of people on the other side of the world as neighbors? How do we think of people in generations to come as neighbors? How do we think about life on Earth that's not human as our neighbors? How does all of that become part of a shared, beloved community? And another thing that sort of developed as we went along was this recognition that part of, part of what's going on in terms of why we haven't addressed climate change is old stories of human selfishness and greed and not, not uh, thinking of others and not thinking of the future. But, but there's also a, a newer level to it of despair, of really looking at the scope of problems facing the world and, and just throwing up your hands and saying, you know, this is too big, I can't do it, and, and people aren't listening, and why even bother thinking about it? And, and so one of the points that I started raising in our discussions and that then made it into a document that we, we then started writing together was the importance of faith traditions as sources of hope. And, and not kind of blind optimism, oh, gee, everything's going to be okay, because religious, religious hope, I think, comes from a very different place. It comes from a recognition that it's not necessarily going to be okay, that if we stand by it can be terrible, and that, that, that solutions don't come quickly, and that, you know, we have these, these stories in our traditions of generations of oppression, but we also have movements towards freedom and towards compassion and, and love and healing. And so one of the things that, that I felt and that my colleagues came to agree was that we, we have to inject the climate debate into this context of, of hope, 
and and that that the faith community really can serve a role there that is you know beyond anything that a policymaker or a scientist could do because we we understand hope in a different sort of way that's critical the way you lay it out for us rabbi daniel and is there a psalm that could give us some sort of sense of hope oh well you know the the psalms are are magnificent in this regard because you know again the the psalms talk about really deep despair so they're not just like oh life is all great even in the midst of comfort it's talking about well i walk through the valley of the shadow of death but you are with me so that that's one place of hope is to know that we're not alone that yeah we're we're in in you know i i think if if folks didn't get it before they they sure better get it by now that that we need each other, and that, that one of the really difficult things about the pandemic has been how lonely people have been, but that, that the ultimate connection to, to meaning, to life, to spirit, to the divine, is, is really always possible for us. And that's a central theme of, of, the, of the Psalms, that, that even when things are, are terrible, that we're accompanied, that we're, not, that we're not alone, and that there are times when, again, in the worlds of the psalm, when, when mourning, M-O-U-R, mourning, becomes dancing, that, that, that we are able to hold those simultaneously, to know what we've lost, to know our pain, and yet to know that that doesn't entirely define us, that, that, there are, that there's also this uh, constant possibility for renewal and rebirth, and, and that that contains this very deep message of, of, of hope. Tell us what the document ultimately, what shape it took, and what happened with it. You know, we, we had the, all these discussions back and forth, and, and each of us made presentations. And at some point, I, I, the woman from Wilton Park, who you know, was kind of chairing the process, Alison Hilliard, I spoke to her and I said, Alison, I'm really enjoying these discussions, but I don't quite understand how we're going to get from point A to point B of, of actually making a document. And she said, you know, excellent point. Why don't you, it's better to have this move ahead through the, the people in, involved in it and not the people chairing it. So why don't you bring that up in the next meeting? So so I did, and we started then making sort of lists of, well, what are the values that we think are really key, and what are the things we want to call for, both in terms of values, but also in terms of, uh, of more concrete policy goals, not to, the extent, not to the extent of sort of what percentage of an economy should be based on this or that or the other, but, you know, what do rich nations owe to poor nations? What does this generation owe to future generations? What should we be investing in? And, and what voices need to be part of the discussion? You know, one of the things that I felt like I learned along the way is that I, I've been raised in, in an outmoded idea of social justice where, you know, kind of the, the Lorax model, um, you know, I speak for the trees. I speak for those whose voices aren't being heard. And, and that's better than ignoring those voices, but it, what we really need to get to is have people be able to speak for themselves and to hear those voices directly. And, and so we were kind of making the statement indirectly by, by having people from all these different faith traditions and indigenous traditions and, and hearing about indigenous peoples and their relationship to the earth. 
But we needed to do that explicitly. We needed to say youth need to be at the table, women need to be at the table, indigenous groups need to be at the table, and that that this is a problem that faces all of humanity and we can't solve it without the wisdom of all of of humanity. And so we, we sort of made these lists of values and then started putting that into words and having a number of revisions back and forth. And uh, I, I have a lot of, a lot deeper respect for the work that was done in drafting the Constitution now of, of compromises and, and, and drafts and redrafts. And, and here I want to put in a brief plug for Bishop Bambera, who, who I consulted with it regularly as, I, as this process was starting and as I was going along, and who over and over again said, listen, if with Pope Francis, when he brings people together, it's not because he wants to say something and have everybody say amen. He, he really wants to get people's voices out there. So with each draft, I submitted really extensive comments, and those mostly made it into the to the final thing. And, and then I sort of try to take that a step further and go back to these people that I had said at the beginning who I thought would be invited, some of the people I've been working with on faith and environment issues for decades now, and say, okay, you know, this is, this is not for public release, but here's where we are in this discussion. What's missing? What have, what have I not thought to put in this yet? And what have other people not put in it yet? And to bring those voices in as well. And that was really all inspired by the way that Bishop Bambera talked about Pope Francis and, and that process. And so over the course of a few months, we, we put together a final version of the document, and then we really lucked out because the timing was that we were going to meet in Rome on October 4th, St. Francis Day. And we were really, I mean, I don't think we knew it at the time, but we were in a sort of a COVID window where the... Delta surge had really calmed down in, in much of Europe. Italy had really had very high infection rates, and, but it was, they were taking very serious precautions, and, and the rates had really dropped, and this was before Omicron stepped on the scene. And so we were able to gather in person in, in Rome to, to sign the document and to have discussions about what do we do next. And this document was intended then to go to Scotland? Yes. Yeah, so the, the presiding person, the, the president of COP26, was there as we signed this, and we you know, handed that to him, and, and he brought that into discussions in Glasgow. And uh, originally, Pope Francis himself was going to be there to present it, but he um, has been having health issues, and so he did not go. But Archbishop Gallagher, one of the high-level people who were involved in the climate discussions with us, did go there as his representative. And, and so that was brought to Glasgow and, you know, I hope made some difference there. In the run-up to Glasgow, but between when I came back from Rome and when the American delegation left, you know, it was really a very sweet thing of the people that I had consulted and whose whose input I had put in from the states, whose input I had put into the draft, were really grateful that they had been listened to. And they said, Daniel, you know, we, we have to get this out here, too, before Glasgow. And so together we organized a few different things. We organized a I mean, protest is a, a maybe not exactly the right word, but a gathering in front of the State Department where all these heads of different Washington offices of faith traditions read from the document that we put together. And then we presented it 
to one of the assistants to Secretary Kerry, who is one of the lead negotiators for the U.S. in, in Glasgow. And we read it on the steps of the Capitol as they were debating the infrastructure bill. And then when it came time for President Biden to head over to Scotland, I just had this idea that we should add to this. And there's a Jewish tradition called Tefillat HaDerech, which means prayer for the travelers. And so I took the traditional prayer for the travelers, and then I integrated it with some of the things that we said in the in the document, and we wrote a prayer for President Biden as he traveled to Glasgow and shared it with, with again, with a group of, of mostly rabbinical colleagues, but some people from other faith traditions, and then we sent that on to the White House, and it got some news coverage, and we know that, that it was received by that delegation. And then as, as COP26 was drawing to a conclusion, and, you know, I want to be upfront here, there were a lot of things that we wish had happened in the climate negotiations that didn't happen, on the one hand. But on the other hand, there were ways that this gathering was different from the previous ones. Surprisingly, it was the first time in all of the previous 25 discussions on climate change where the word fossil fuels made it into the final document and, and where justice concerns were really explicitly addressed in a, in a variety of ways. And, and perhaps most importantly of all, instead of saying, okay, um, let's review these plans in five years, one of the things that the document said was we need to go back right now and start working on what we can do that will be stronger next year. And so that seemed to me to be a, a perfect opportunity. And so... For a closing prayer for COP26, I turned to another ancient Jewish ritual called Kiddush Levana, the blessing for the moon. And it's a really neat custom, not so frequently practiced nowadays, of going out in the first few days of the month, of the, of the lunar month, and standing before the, the moon in the evening and looking at the, at the moon that's still pretty new and just a little bigger than a, a crescent. And... And understanding that as a metaphor of, of the, the, the flaws, the darkness that we have, and yet the possibility of light to come. And so I wrote a concluding blessing for the gathering, really not thinking of COP26 as the end, but, but taking advantage of that idea that they're thinking for the next gathering and saying, okay, in the traditional Kedush Levanah, it talks about how the sun and the moon and the stars all go out to do their appointed tasks. And so we included some language saying, you know, now it's time for the leaders of the world to go out and do their appointed task of, of not just living up to this document, but going beyond it. And, and this time I not only brought it to American colleagues, but also shared it with the folks that we had gathered with in, in Rome and really got a, a, a nice global group of folks to sign on to that. And I think the goal is to keep that discussion going. So things sort of calm down over the winter break and winter holidays, and, and obviously, especially Christian leaders, but religious leaders of many stripes had other things that they were working on over the winter. But now we're trying to get our discussions back up again, because in April, and this is the first time this has happened in a few decades, not only 
our Passover and Easter overlapping, which is a pretty frequent thing. But Ramadan, the the holy month in the Islamic calendar, starts before Passover and Easter and ends after it. So it continues all through those. So the all the the Abrahamic traditions will have major religious holidays in the middle of April. And it turns out that there's also major Buddhist and Hindu and Sikh and Jain and Baha'i festivals all in the middle of April. And so my goal right now is to try to get people both in the States and globally to use that conjunction as a way of talking about our shared commitment to the environment and to say, you know, we have these these religious traditions that involve hope and rebirth and freedom. And if we really believe them, then this has got to be one of the ways that we take our faith seriously, by coming together and working together to show greater love for each other and greater love for our planet. We want to draw attention to the fact that people have a chance to see you attend a talk, whether it be virtual completely or whether there will be a hybrid you're part of the Schemmel Forum World Affairs Seminars in February. Yes, and I'm really excited about that. It's a great, really a great resource in our community for years and years now, the Schemmel Forum, and has brought so many important issues and so many really interesting thinkers. And I'm, I'm very excited to be part of that and to be able to, to address these issues with the people there and to hear their questions and to see what we can think together. And that one's going to be on February 10th from noon to 1.30. And, and again, like you said, certainly there will certainly be some online version of it. And whether there's in-person or not, I think will be depending on, on the state of the world at that point. But whether we're able to all sit in the same room together or be in the same Zoom room together, you know, it is a chance for us to be thinking together in this area about what can we do and how can our faith systems help us as we try to take the actions that need to happen. Rabbi Daniel Swartz, spiritual leader of Temple Hesed here in Scranton and executive director of the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life, speaking with us as one of the spiritual leaders who took part in faith and science towards COP26. It was held in October, October 4th, a signing event at the Vatican, and Rabbi Daniel was present there and took part in a seven-month-long process to prepare the document that was signed on October 4th and was submitted to the 26th UN Conference on Climate Change held in Glasgow this past November. We had a chance to learn that we can attend a lecture and question and answer session with Rabbi Swartz. Our common home, Vatican and Multi-Faith Engagement on Environment and Climate Justice, it will be held Thursday, February 10th, from noon to 1.30, and it's part of the semester of the Schemmel Forum World Affairs Lunch and Seminars. And for more information on the web, it's scranton.edu slash Forum. And Schemmel is spelled S-C-H-E-M-E-L Forum. Scranton.edu slash Schemmel Forum. 
As we heard, there are hopes that there will be an opportunity to attend in person in Brennan Hall, in the Rose Room there, but there will always be a remote link available as well, or maybe completely. So check the website, scranton.edu slash Forum, and that's Thursday, February 10th, from noon to 1.30. And for information about Rabbi Daniel, consult the website at Temple Hesed in Scranton, templehesed.org. And that's H-E-S-E-D, templehesed.org. Rabbi Daniel Swartz, S-W-A-R-T-Z, of Scranton's Temple Hesed, executive director of the Coalition on the Environment and Jewish Life.